Hi, this is David Berkus, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tanvi Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with David Berkus. David is a best-selling author, an award-winning podcaster, and a professor of management at Oral Roberts University. He is also the author of The Myths of Creativity, the truth about how innovative companies and people generate great ideas, in addition to being a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Some of you might also recognize him from his guest host stint on my show when he interviewed me about my book, Leadership Vertigo, as part of the month-long event held on my website to celebrate the release of my first leadership book. Today, though, we're going to be talking about David's latest book, Under New Management, and about some of the ideas he shares on why organizations need to adapt and change the way they operate in this new world of work. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, David, the overall premise of your new book, Under New Management, is to challenge our understanding of current management principles and the way we lead our organizations in today's business environment. Now, before we dive into some of the areas you examine in your book, I'd like to first ask you, what was the inspiration for this book? What was that moment where you looked at the way things are and said, you know, we need to do something about this. It's time we challenge established concepts of how we should lead organizations to maximize productivity and drive organizational success. You know, I, I wish I wish I had a story that cool of this sort of like design, divine moment of exactly when it happened. But no, the, the truth is, honestly, I just sort of followed my curiosity. So my, my first book, The Myths of Creativity, dealt with a lot of the misconceptions we have about creativity and innovation. And one of the things that I I did in order to do that was I dove deep into some of the most creative and innovative uh, companies of today. You know, so your Pixar's and Facebook and Google and those, you know, the almost cliche creative, innovative companies. And yeah, every one of them had these different um, policies and practices that just seemed like, oh, that's different. That's not how we do things. You know, like Facebook does hackathons or Google has its famous 20% time. And you know, in each case, I just started thinking these are these are different. These are these are definitely not you know business as usual. And then at the same time, I'd be you know just sort of browsing through my day, and you'd see on Fast Company or Inc. or Business Insider this story about a company that oh they have unlimited vacation or whatever it is. And and each time I'm reading about these policies or I'm noticing these things and these companies, and I'm seeing them through the lens of organizational psychology, and I feel like, okay, no one's telling the real story of what's going on here. No one's actually saying, like, all of the articles are, oh, wouldn't unlimited vacation be great? No one's actually saying, like, okay, what is the big factor into why that works or paying people to quit or a lot of these different ideas? And that's that kind of curiosity train was what became under new management. You know, the idea was to look at these different practices and, and policies and just sort of develop a rationalization of why they worked. And then sort of following that path of curiosity, I uncovered kind of a, a, a way bigger deal, which is, you know, these are the things that talented people are going to and that really innovative and productive companies are using to bring the best out of their talent. And so maybe there's more to this. Maybe we actually do need to sort of switch over to a lot of these, you know. And so you keep diving, you keep searching, and you find that, you know, basically – we drug Frederick Taylorism and a lot of ideas from scientific management with us when we left the, the factory and moved to the office. And we're just sort of finding now 
we know they don't work. We've known that since Dilbert has be become a popular comic, you know, so decades we've known it doesn't work. We're just now starting to figure out how to make it click. And that's really the bigger thing I think a lot of these policies represent is the what actually works in this new factory that is knowledge work. Okay, so what I'd like to do now then is, given that curiosity to kind of reassess the way we work, and like you said, as the Dilbert cartoons, we clearly know it's not working. I'd like to talk about some of those management principles or tools as you refer to them. You, in many ways, upend and challenge the reader to reassess. And, you know, some are no doubt ones that leaders are currently struggling with, and it's the ones we probably, like you said, we've heard about on Fast Company and Inc. Magazine, and they're certainly the ones that maybe we'd like to modify or replace. And others, I'm sure, can seem downright head-scratching and even controversial for how it challenges decades of social conditioning about the nature of work. So to start things off, I'd like to look at one management tool that I often struggle with keeping under control, especially when I'm on the road speaking at various conferences and organizations, and that's my email inbox. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, to be sure, every couple of months, there's some columnist or so-called expert proclaiming the death of emails thanks to the greater usage of other digital channels like text messaging and the like. But despite the amount of attention these comments get, there seems to be this shoulder-shrugging attitude that email is pretty much a fixture of the communication landscape. And of course, that hasn't stopped many organizations from trying to find ways for their employees to be more effective in how they use that tool. And I'm sure we've all heard examples of companies either restricting when emails can be sent or even outright banning their usage. And in your chapter, Outlaw Email, you make the case that we really shouldn't be spending hours on the job sifting and replying to all these emails in our inbox, as that's not what our jobs are supposed to be about. And you even point out how there's several studies that have been done that have conclusively proven that emails are not only not the most effective way for us to be productive or to reduce the stress levels that come from operating in our faster pace, always on global environment. So given my own experience, I'm sure many of my readers' experiences, what should we be doing to wrestle back control in terms of how we use emails to make sure it's not this massive time-draining exercise we all grapple with in our work weeks? Yeah. Yeah, so email is a great tool. I mean, it's it's a great tool because it is uh, cheap and it's asynchronous, right? You can send a lot of it and you can send it whenever you want. And th- that's also kind of the problem, right? You, we right. send a ton of it and we send it whenever we want. And that's really sort of what leads this kind of revolution. I mean, I, I, I know lots of people, I'm one of them, I know that you're one of them that, that say, you know, email helps me get my work done. But Unless your job is literally to delete email, email is not what you do to create value, right? It's, it's right. a tool for coordinating the valuable activities that you actually need to do. And a lot of companies are wondering, okay, is it actually the best tool for that? You know, we never, we sort of embraced when it came out and we rolled it out company-wide. And I mean, I can remember, I don't know if you, if you remember this, but I can remember that there was a time when people didn't have an automatic company email address and it was sort of like a badge of honor to like, oh, look, I actually have this. I have an email address at this company. It's like the new business card, you know, was right. for a little time. Yep. And, then, and then eventually we realized just how terrible that is, <laughs> you know, and what we signed up for. And that's really where we are now is, is we're staring at this tool that at first we said, this is great. We can send it whenever we want. We can send as much of it as we want. And now we're going, people send it too often and they send too much of it. And that's, that's a result of never actually questioning whether or not it was a good tool. We never had that conversation. So the, the companies that I highlight in under new management are the ones who are, who are basically having that conversation. That's what starts it all. It's not just a uniform let's ban email, although there are a lot of companies that are going that route. My, my favorite being Atos in France, because it's a tech sector company of thousands of people. If ever there were a company that you'd think would embrace email, it'd be them. 
But instead, they've decided this isn't the best tool. We need to build a better tool for internal collaboration. And then others are realizing that, you know, just like we think, it really is a distraction on our on the deep work that we do or on our relaxed time at home. You know, most of us stick with our defaults, whether that's, you know, Microsoft Outlook checking every five minutes or your iPhone um, doing push email or whatever it is. We, we stick with that. We don't change it. Something like 80% of people still uh, who use the iPhone still have the default ringtone, right? Mm. So um, we stick with those defaults, and those defaults are designed to attract us and bring us back to the technology. That's why the technology designers put them in there. And so because of that, we need kind of a company-wide discussion about this. Is this the best tool? When should we be sending it? So as I said earlier, some companies like Atos say, let's ban it entirely. Others say, you know, this is a distraction. And so we're going to limit the hours that the email server is even on so you can actually go home and be at home. Or we're going to say, um, we're going to say that, okay, we do email at these times, but then these times during the day are actually no email time. So nobody sends email from, you know, 10 to noon or, or from uh, one to three so that people have dedicated time to do that deep work without fear of interruption. And that really, I think, is a is a great sort of first step in this larger conversation we need to have inside of work about what are the best tools for getting our work done, because we're finding that email is not as great as we hoped, and it's not as exciting as we once thought it was. You mentioned Atos, but there's another company that you write about in this chapter, and I especially like the strategy that they use, and that was the German automaker Dahlmer, who yes. had that thing that when an employee goes on vacation... Not only do people get a notice advising them that the person is away, but it tells them that their email will be deleted. And so they have a choice to either resend their email when the person returns or send it to a specific employee who's managing that task while this employee is away. I think it's such a smart strategy to make sure that when employees return to work, they're not wasting time trying to get hold of their inbox, but they're using that refreshed state of mind to get back into doing work that matters to their organization's shared purpose. Yeah, no, it's it's that great. They call it the mail on holiday program. And I think, you know, what's funny is since since sort of writing about that or since that idea became popular and a couple different journalists wrote about it, I see individuals doing it. So, you know, I have a friend who just wrapped up her sort of deep book writing mode, right? She gathered all her research and for like four months, she went into monk mode on how to write it. And she basically set up an autoresponder that said that, like, I'm writing my book. I'll be writing my book until March 1st. And if you if you if you're inquiring about my speaking or something else, you know, here's who to contact. If you just wanted to chat or just wanted to send me this information, send it back to me on March 1st because I'm going to delete everything in my email inbox when I get back to it. And I, I mean, I think it's it's I caught her a couple times checking her email throughout <laughs> those three months. But overall, I mean, I thought it was a really good uh, move and one that, you know, again, this isn't permanent. This isn't the idea that like you're just saying, yeah, I have an email address, but I never check my email. You're actually just saying, hey, for this period of time where I generate most of my value, I need to put some boundaries on this. And so here's what they are. Right. I mean, I send off emails like I'm sure you do. And sometimes the person responds at these weird times. And other times you're like waiting, like, okay, did they get it? Are they, are they going to respond? And you're kind of caught in that state of limbo, which kind of impedes your own ability to get your own work done because it becomes its own source of distraction. So I thought it was just a really smart strategy because we're really changing our relationship with email and how we employ it as a tool. And we're not, like you say, using the default setting for how the technology was originally set up. Yeah, and, and everybody's different, and that makes it hard, especially when there's a power dynamic, right? So, mm. you know, right right now in my life, I have two young kids that are four and two, which means, like, we go to bed really early. Some other people that I work with are still, like, unmarried and childless, so they're up until, like, midnight. So they might send an email at 11 o'clock at night. 
And if there's a power difference, right, if that person actually had a, you know, authority over me, now I might be feeling pressure to respond mm. as quickly as possible. And they might not even be intending to do that. They just do because of that power dynamic. So again, I think this is something that the reason I included it in a, in a book about new management practices is this is something that I think really has to be management led inside an organization, because when there's a power differential, the people on sort of the lower end of the hierarchy they're not going to be the ones brave enough to lead this conversation. It's on the managers and the leaders of the organization to do it. Okay, so David, I'd like to move to another topic that, again, we read and hear a lot about in the leadership literature is something that's in desperate need of change, and that is the dreaded annual performance review. Now, in the chapter book that addresses this, you examine how Adobe went about replacing their annual performance review process, which they found through employee feedback was not really delivering on what it was being used for with a less formalized, less structured conversational tool that managers could use to have more frequent and effective conversations with their employees about their performance, about their expectations those in charge have about their contributions, and identifying opportunities for employee learning and growth. Now, I've written on my blog about how leaders can be more effective in providing feedback for those they lead. But I was wondering if you could discuss how do we make this transition from relying on that rigid and formalized annual performance review to something that's more immediate and effective in providing employees with both guidance on how they can improve their contributions within the organization, while at the same time giving feedback to those in charge about what it is they need to be inspired, motivated, and empowered to bring their best selves to the work they do. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you actually hit it on on the nail on the head, actually. You know, the the title of the chapter in Underneath Management is Ditch Performance Appraisals, but really it's about ditching that dreaded annual review. The the biggest problem with it is that it's annual, right? So it's not the level of feedback that you need to actually make a substantive uh, performance improvement. Like, imagine if you were playing football and you played really hard and then you got to, you had to wait a year to figure out what the score was. How do you get ready for next week? You you can't, right? So, That's one of the big issues. The, the other big issue is that the way that most companies do it, and this is, you know, I looked this up, at least in the United States, this is predominantly based off of, it's one of those rare instances where for-profit world was actually following the federal government. The first real sort of definitive performance evaluations happened in the federal government, and they included a classification, you know, so they included a, a summarization of, are you meeting or exceeding or underperforming, right? And ever since that time, a lot of these annual reviews have turned less into a feedback discussion and more into just a negotiation about whether or not that's the right label, right? So not only are we doing it not often enough, we're turning that one conversation we are having every year into a negotiation about the right way to label somebody's performance, mm-hmm. you know? And and so a lot of people, I mean, I get a lot of questions when I travel and speak about this and people say like, well, you know, performance evals, it's, it's half how you do it and half how you play the game. And I point out, you know, that's exactly the problem. It's not supposed to be a game. Yeah, exactly. It's supposed to be an actual conversation about improving. So in the case of, you know, the, the biggest company that I highlight in, in this chapter is uh, Adobe, who just decided to do away with it entirely and then invested a lot. This is the big key invested a lot in replacing the performance evaluation with training for for managers on how to have what they called check-ins. And they had very clear definitions of what a check-in is. A check-in is any conversation can be as short as 10 minutes. So usually it's a bit longer, but it has to cover three different areas in the same conversation. You have to have feedback, expectations, and growth and development all talked about in one conversation. Feedback is both my feedback for you on how you're doing as a performer, your feedback from me on how I'm doing as a manager, getting you what you need in order to keep working. 
The same thing with expectations. So now that we've gotten feedback on our prior expectations, we're setting new expectations, both me for you, but you for me as well. And then we're finishing up with a conversation about growth and development. Where do you see your role in the organization? Where do you see yourself growing to in the organization? How can I help you get there? What developmental opportunities or resources do you need? You know, basically ending with the bigger picture of how someone makes a broader contribution to the organization, which I love and really is the, is the more positive note to end on than how most of these go with just, well, you know, you're an adequate performer. Keep up the great work. That's, that's not how we want to end. We want to end with that bigger picture conversation about how valuable the person is because they're in this role and they're on this track. Absolutely. I think what's key here as the main takeaway is that it's not just about the rigidity of the annual performance review or even the fact that this conversation happens once a year, but that what we want to do here is really focus on having conversations that fuel employee performance, that basically leaves employees feeling hungry to achieve and do more because they feel like we're giving them both the means and the opportunity to become stronger contributors to our organization. Right. And as, as well-intentioned as the, the annual review is, I actually have no problem with the reasons why we started the annual review. We just, we're not actually, the, what, the system we designed isn't meeting the, the reasons we started for it. So the only real solution is let's take another crack at it. Let's do it a different way and see if we can improve. And the good news from companies like Adobe that are doing this, it's improving. So, David, so far we've been looking at some of the issues that you discussed in the book that I think a lot of us can relate to and understand that, yes, it's not working the way it is and we have to change it. And now I kind of want to look at one of what could be seen as one of the more controversial concepts you present in your book, and that is the idea that organizations should make salaries transparent. Now, at least here in North America, I think this uh, idea that anyone can find out how much we make can be a bit disconcerting in large part because we've been brought up with this notion that it's not polite to discuss how much someone makes. And of course, I think this social attitude benefits organizations more than society as a whole, especially if we consider how little movement there's been on closing the gender pay gap. For example, I just read about a recent study that was done, which found that female computer programmers are paid 72 cents for every dollar a male programmer makes. So just from the point of view of dealing with the ongoing gender pay gap, making salaries transparent would certainly go a long way to addressing that issue. But as you point out in your book, there's actually a very strong, compelling reason why organizations should make the salaries they pay to all their employees, not just those on the front lines, but those in the higher positions as well, something that anyone can find out. And it's, it's information that is freely shared with everyone in the organization. Yeah, I, I was not expecting to be such an advocate for this uh, policy as I am because, you know, I grew up in North America. I grew up with that culture idea. I mean, 2016 North America, we are more comfortable talking about our sex lives than our salary lives. Mm, yeah. Right. And and I mean, first of all, let's just pause for a minute and think about how weird that is. But anyway, <laughs> um, we're we're just it's the polite and right thing to do to keep it all secret. And I get that. And, and so I was kind of coming at it, trying to figure out, like, okay, what are the reasons for this? And there really are, other than the sort of cultural discomfort, right? And this is a cultural thing. This is not as big a deal in a variety of other countries throughout the world. Um, in fact, some countries actually even have it countrywide. You can look up what the tax returns of any other citizen are, right? So so that, that yearning for privacy, it's not universal. It's definitely cultural. And so that was kind of the first strike for me of, of trying to prove this. And then I started looking into what the benefits are. And, you know, it turns out that the biggest the biggest other argument for privacy is that if you are sharing information, right, and I get this still today when I do interviews or speeches about this, the biggest argument is well, if you get if you start sharing it, you're going to have animosity and comparisons, 
To which I, I say, prove to me that's not already happening now, because we all know it is, right? In every organization you've ever worked for, people are trying to read these subtle cues and blow them up into bigger things uh, and trying to make assertions about who's getting paid what and trying to figure out if the pay system is fair, if it's actually rewarding performance, or if Bob, the, the guy who slacks off in accounting, is actually getting paid way more than I am. Etc. Right. And in fact, this is one of the oldest and longest standing companies and one of the biggest companies by headcount that per practices salary transparency is Whole Foods. And it actually came about from that idea. People were going to John Mackey, one of the co-founders and saying, you get paid too much as a CEO. And he finally couldn't stand it anymore or, or saying that to their store manager, et cetera. And finally, he couldn't stand it anymore and said, you know what? This is what I get paid. In fact, here's what everybody gets paid. And here's the performance data for why they are worth that much money to our company. Right. So the idea was the comparison is already happening, uh, and so why not give them the proper data? Now, obviously, if you're not paying fairly, you probably shouldn't share this, but their idea was, we, like most companies, they were striving to have a system that actually did reward valuable contributors, that actually did pay for performance, and so why keep that a secret? And it turns out there are decades of research that line up with this as well. So going back to John Stacey Adams and what we now call equity theory was this idea that people are always trying to compare how their their perceived reward with with someone else's perceived reward and then their perception of how hard they're working with someone else's perception of how hard working the the problem with that is we're filled with psychological biases that make it really hard to ascertain what somebody else is doing in terms of performance and really hard to guess how much money they're making so we're making these comparisons we're growing this animosity and we're doing it off of flawed data and so the only real solution to that is to reveal it so that's a motivational thing when people proven in both the lab and in the in the field that when people know how much they're getting paid, they know that their company pays fairly, they're more motivated to work hard to improve their pay. They're more likely to collaborate with with individuals because there's not this weird um, hidden competition over who's getting paid more. It's it's sort of all out in the open. Uh, and then the other societal benefit, which you already alluded to, is it turns out that this has a big effect on reducing discrimination, gender wage gap and other sort of societal problems. Uh, in the so in the United States, you know, across all sectors, or excuse me, across all for-profit sectors, that number is seventy-seven cents on the dollar. That's a number we quote often, and that I should say that uh, the the economist in me is saying, well, that's not controlling for any factors, but there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, and we still argue over what factors would be right to control of. But regardless of that, if we look at just the federal government, where salaries are fixed and salaries are given to um, certain levels and everybody knows what every level gets, the gender wage gap shrinks to 11%. So uncontrolled to uncontrolled, we're shrinking it dramatically. Imagine what we're doing, you know, if we have that, and then we have all of our other uh, interventions and attempts to sort of resolve the gender wage gap. I think this is honestly the one we should start with before we have any other conversations. This is what we should advocate for first. And in the United States, this is actually what's happening. Uh, President Obama recently announced that we're going to start uh, companies that employ greater than 100 people are going to start submitting pay data broken down by rank, but also by age, gender and ethnicity and race. And it's another it's an attempt to have that sort of sunlight act as a disinfectant account around these ideas. And I think that's really key, because to be honest, some of this is discrimination that's not overt. Right. So if, if it's not an overt thing, if you don't know that this is going on inside your organization because you you mean well, you're doing the best, and yet, like you know, like the computer engineers that you cited, you're doing well, you mean well, and yet it's still happening. Well, then the only real way to kind of make sure that it's not happening is to make it transparent. 
Yeah. And there's an interesting point you bring up about how one of the reasons why we, we also do this, because I'm sure people listening going, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable making salaries transparent in my organization, is is that it is part of the negotiation process, right? When someone comes in and you, you know, you're thinking, okay, this is someone I want to hire, they usually ask you, well, what's your number, right? Well, how much are you willing to be paid to do this position? And that's usually what organizations use to figure out, okay, oh, he only wants or she only wants this much. Well, then fine, we'll just pay her that much, even though we were willing to pay more. Right, right. You come into the negotiation with a huge disadvantage because exactly. you don't know what their number is, but you know what yours is. And, and I, you know, that's the interesting thing. If everybody was bold enough to, to when someone said, you know, how much did you make in your last job? If they were bold enough to answer back, well, no, 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 what's your range for this position? And then I'll answer the question, but no job hunter is going to do that. No. Right. So, and then the, you know, the other thing is pr- prove to me that skills as a negotiator are important for any job other than sales representative. Exactly. So so we have these huge gaps in, in pay that are basically attributed to how well someone can negotiate. And that's not actually a relevant factor in them being able to do their job well. Exactly. And so I think that's one of the reasons why there's all this uh, angst about inequalities in income amongst minorities and uh, women and so forth, because there's that implied discrimination that's going underway, when in fact, in some cases, it might just be more just that we're having cultural and social things where maybe they're not as willing to negotiate or push the issue as much. And that's probably why a majority are not being paid as much. So it's not really discriminatory. I'm not saying that's always the case, but because we're not making it transparent, it puts too many factors in there, which like you said, people with that equity theory are always trying to figure out, well, what are my contributions worth? And am I getting a pay that's equitable or equal to what those around me are doing? It kind of adds to that uncertainty and it does create animosity, which is something we really don't want to have going on our organization. Right. No. And, you know, even my point about saying, you know, 77 cents on the dollar, but there are economists that argue over what factors we could control for. The whole reason we're still arguing over that stuff is that we are shrouded in mystery, right? And inside organizations, it's no different. As long as people are quiet about this, then even if it's unintentional, things just sort of happen because everybody's different. Not, there's not even a gender thing on this. Some, some, you know, there's, there's some research that tries to suggest that women maybe don't negotiate salary as much as men, but even among men, like some high performers might actually be afraid of confrontation. And so therefore they're not going to negotiate as much. And again, we're, we don't have a fair system. The only real way to ensure that we can actually have a conversation about have, making our system as fair as possible is to first start from a place of transparency. Then we can move forward on making sure things are fair. Until then, it's too easy to just hide in transparency and avoid that sort of difficult work of making sure our pay system is fair. I think that's probably the reason from an organizational standpoint that we think we want to go towards this. These are uncomfortable conversations to have. They're difficult conversations to have. I get that. But the drawbacks and the long-term costs are not worth the short-term savings of avoiding these conversations. Now, there's another chapter of your book, David, that can also, at first glance, seem a bit on the controversial side. And it's the chapter called Fire the Managers, where you discuss the notion of doing away with the management hierarchy. Now, this can seem controversial when we consider the recent discussions in the leisure sphere about the negative impact from Zappos' holacracy experiment, where they basically did away with managers in favor of creating self-directed teams. And as reported in various media outlets, this year marks the first time in eight years that Zappos wasn't on Fortune's annual list of the 100 best companies to work for. And also how over the course of the past year, they've had a 29% employee turnover rate, which is much higher than what they've had in years before they rolled out this holacracy organizational structure. So 
in light of that news about a company that so many have referred to as an example of how to create a thriving, engaged workplace environment, it could seem like the idea of firing managers might not be such a sound approach after all. Of course, when we delve deeper into the stories and the research you share in this chapter, we can find probably one key reason why Zappos' approach might not have been as effective to date as they might have hoped. And it deals actually with something that I've actually spoken about in some of my talks about how leaders can inspire and motivate people to be fully committed to the shared purpose of the organization. So when we talk about removing the management hierarchy here, it's not so much doing away with managers as it is changing the nature of the relationship that exists between leaders and their employees because now we're providing employees with something far more significant in terms of how they approach their roles in the organization. So while you and I both know and fully agree on what that is, I was wondering if you could share with my audience what that vital piece of the puzzle is that leaders need to provide to bring out the best in those they lead. Yeah, so, and, and actually, you know, I was really careful in writing the book. Um, I was in doing the work of researching and writing it as Zappos was going through the shift to holacracy and was very careful sort of not to mention it, not to use them as an example in that chapter because mm. because the jury was still out, right? Initially, I mean, if if 20% of your workforce quits because you're making such a drastic change, that's honestly not that bad of a deal if that 20% were going to be the disengaged and people working against right. the company anyway. So turnover alone was sort of the last number that I had seen while I was still writing the book. And my jury was still sort of out. This best places to work thing is an interesting new development that, you know, I haven't had enough time to sort of dig into their sort of reasons for it. But I, I can tell you this, that the the reason that's shared among companies that, that do this sort of um, no managers, and by the way, no managers doesn't mean no management. It means we find a different way to um, supervise and provide resources and those sort of things. But the missing piece to me is really autonomy. You know, it's a question of whether or not you're actually doing autonomy. And and what that basically means is that, you know, we, we live in a society where more and more people are doing knowledge work, meaning the individual contributor is the one uh, who, as a result of their brain and their ability to come up with solutions and make decisions, et cetera, is generating the value for the organization. As we switch to that type of work, autonomy, the ability to decide how you do what you do is hugely important. And this is a this is a new change. You know, management as an invention was based off this idea that labor doesn't know how best to do the work. So management's job is to teach them how to do it and then reinforce that they're doing the work best. This is different, right? The balance of power has sort of shifted. And the thing that we can use to really motivate people to do great work is to give them a say over the domain of how they do that work. And in the case of like a holacracy and a couple other self-managed teams ideas, it's possible to design a system where instead of one individual manager, you turn it over to the team, and yet still people don't feel like they have a say over how they do their individual job. And that's really the big piece. So in when I was writing the Fire the Managers chapter in Under New Management, I really wanted to emphasize that idea that there's a couple different ways that companies do this no management thing. Some go to a team-based system, others like Morningstar Farms, which is a tomato processing um, company. They go to um, what they call CLOUs, which are letters basically of agreement between you and every other internal customer that you interact with. And so you really are managing it on an individual basis. The, the uniform thing that all of these different ways of eliminating a management hierarchy, the, the uniform thing that they have throughout all of them, at least the successful ones, is that all of them are a means of saying, you, you do the work, so you're also the one who knows how best to do the work and let us know how we can support you in doing that. 
And you know what's particularly interesting about this core psychological need that we all have, because it is independent of our nationality or culture or race or creed or any other differentiating factor we might choose to use, is that it doesn't promote individualism where it's all about what we want or what we're going to get from participating or contributing to this process. Rather, by providing a greater sense of autonomy to our employees, it actually fosters a stronger sense of belonging and community where we care about the collective efforts and vision because we're part of that process. We're part of that vision. And so collaboration becomes something that is native to the way we work because we feel that greater sense of ownership in both the process and the vision. And a great example that you share in your book is the GE Durham Aircraft Engine Assembly Plant, where every employee is invested in the building these engines from the start of assembly right to the point where it's transported away from the facility, where they're actually even checking the truck to make sure there's nothing on it that could damage it in the process of transportation. Yeah, no, I love I love that story and that idea that, you know, they're, they're not even willing to let go of their engine after the fact until they really believe that the person they're handing it over to is going to treat it with the same level of care that they do. And it, yes. it comes from that idea of, you know, it, it's way easier. You know, Frederick Taylor basically proved that it's it's way easier to build a uh, a factory where you just tell each individual person on an assembly line what to do. And then you monitor how well they do it and you pay them based on how well they're doing it. But that system's not sustainable, especially as the things that we are building get more and more complicated. If you treat people like cogs in the machine, that's fine. The only problem is you're going to have to replace the cogs just like in a regular machine, right? So, you know, you can do that, but it's actually better in the long term, more sustainable and cheaper to design a system where people have a say in the process of how that whole sort of work gets done. In the GE Durham plant case, it was really turned over to teams, not individuals, but that's because building an aircraft engine is a team thing. Um, and really, again, well, the other thing that's unique about GE Durham is that from the start, their whole idea was rather than use a few people who are FAA certified you know, engine mechanics to do the design and then we'll pay people an hourly wage just to work the line, they started with, we want everyone in the factory to have a certain threshold of knowledge. And okay, if they have that knowledge and they want to make a, tr a contribution, how do we design a system that allows that to happen? Okay, David, there's just one other management tool or principle that you discussed in your book that I'd like to discuss with you. Because again, it's one of those issues that you know we see a lot of discussion and experimentation with. And unfortunately, at times, we end up with these less than ideal outcomes. And in this case, it's your chapter that explores the physical setup of most office workplaces, that is the notion of the open workplace. Now, typically what we tend to see being discussed in this topic are more of the fringe design elements, like how some companies are now introducing sleeping pods so their employees can take nap breaks during the day. But what I'd like to focus on, like what you do in this chapter of your book, is the more commonplace issue of whether breaking down those walls and putting people into these open office spaces actually encourages collaboration or whether it actually serves more to introduce distractions that impede their ability to do their work? Well, really, it does both, right? So we've been in a trend for you know the past several decades towards open offices. And the, the trend was pushed by two main factors, although I think the second one was the real reason. The, the first was that there was research supporting the idea that open offices make collaboration easier. They make serendipitous experiences um, happen. And, you know, I wrote a book on creativity and innovation. I can tell you that an open office floor plan definitely stimulates that. There's a problem, though. Every change comes at a cost, right? Right. So the, the other reason, and this, I believe, is the real reason why we moved to open office floor plans, is that we found out it's a lot cheaper. You know, if you have an open office floor plan, you can cram more people into the same amount of square footage. So 
it's a whole lot cheaper to, to kind of run your office. I mean, that's that's truthfully, this is the primary reason a lot of startups and places that we admire go to it at first is we don't have any money. So we, mm. we, we, we rent the cheapest place we can. We're trying to bootstrap this thing. And then we form long tables. And as new people come on, we can't move offices yet. So we'll just here, we'll extend the table out a little bit, right? So that money piece is really the driver. But you know, like I said, switching the design, it all comes at a cost, right? Environment has a huge function on our behavior. And so, yes, increases in collaboration and serendipity, all of those sort of things, but also increases in stress, right? So not only stress from distractions, like you pointed out, but also stress from just feeling like you're sort of always on, always being watched. If you, It's kind of funny. If you, if you go to an open office first thing in the morning as you watch as people file in, if there's no assigned seating, you'll watch people fill in from the walls in, right? Why? Because we as humans want to have our back to the wall when we sit in an environment, right? We just It's just a psychological thing. It's been around since we were running from lions. It's generally not a good idea to turn your back to an open savanna, right? So we do the same thing in the office. The other thing, I mean, I, I find the most interesting study is there's, there's a lot of research that supports that people in open office spaces are more likely to call in sick to work, which means mm. they're either legitimately sick more often or they're sick of their open office. But in either case, People are doing the work less days of a year because of that open office um, factor. So I, to me, you, you weigh the cost, you weigh the benefits, and I just I don't find it worth it. I think that there is probably a way to get most of the benefits of an open office and reduce those um, costs. But that doesn't look like a purely open office. What that actually looks like is what some architects call it activity-based design. I like to actually use the term palette of places, meaning you design your office in such a way that people have a choice of what type of environment they want to be in, whether that's wide open spaces, whether that's private little corrals that can be rented for a little time, all sorts of different um, size conference rooms that you can kind of reserve for whatever type of need you want. And the reason I like this so much is that it aligns with probably the most compelling research I've seen, which is that one of the primary ways that environment affects our ability to get our work done is what we call perceived control. In other words, how much control over my environment do I think I can make? If I can make adjustments to my office, right, which is what office is provided, was a territory of perceived control. Or even if I'm in an open environment, but I can change where I'm working when I'm doing certain things, I'm much more likely to get the benefits of all of those um, openness, but not have so many of the, the drawbacks because I have perceived control. And that actually in some ways, is correlated to that autonomy piece we were talking about earlier. Right. And that's exactly what I've read in some studies done to evaluate employees' impressions about their workplace and how conducive it is to driving their effectiveness on the job. In the majority of cases, what people said is that they do enjoy having these common open spaces that allow them to not just collaborate, but have those everyday interactions that serve to foster relationships and team building. At the same time, though, they would like to have areas of the workplace where they can go and work without interruption, where their focus can be put solely on the work they want to get done and not on how to drown out their nosy coworker or some phone that seems to be constantly ringing. In other words, to your point about that palette of places, we really want to make sure that we're not making our workplace generic, but that it's designed to reflect the kind of environment our employees need to feel like they're not just getting their work done, but that they feel like they're contributing in a meaningful fashion to their organization. Yeah, no, totally. And I, you know, it's interesting last week, uh, and I've since adopted this myself and it's working great, but um, last week I was in New York and I was talking to a lot of different people and I, I found four or five different people who, when we talked about the open office floor plan said, oh yeah, that's the reason why I have my office here, but I also rent 
uh, access to a co-working space a couple blocks over so that I, you know, I have this other space I can go to, which is basically talented employees solving the perceived control piece on their own and basically mm. saying like, look, they're never going to change this. So I'm going to change it for me. And when I need a different uh, space, when I need a different type of environment, I'm going to head over here and get it done. So, you know, I mean, honestly, we could start thinking about that. And I know a couple of different major uh, corporations that employ big headcounts that also make access to a co-working space available for that same reason. So that may be one shorter term solution, but really it comes down to that idea of taking a deep look at your environment and saying, how can we give perceived control back over to the people who are doing the work? Well, you know, David, there's many other topics we could discuss in your book, but what I'd like to do here right now is to get you to share one kernel of truth about the way we currently lead our organizations and why we need to embrace some of the transformations we discussed today. If we're not only to be successful today, but create an organization that can thrive in the years to come. So uh, the, the biggest argument I can make is that the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly dispersed, right? So I profile a lot of these companies. These are the companies that are drawing some of our most talented um, contributors, right? And so we can make these changes or we can not make these changes, but we're going to see talent go towards these organizations that do. So if you're comfortable with the idea of losing talent to places that are doing these, by all means, don't do any, anything. But this is where we're headed. And the reason we're headed this way, and this I summarize at the end of the book, I kind of put the closing thought on the book with this, that great leaders don't reinvent products. They don't innovate products. They innovate the factory. Mm. This was true when Frederick Taylor did the whole scientific management piece for industrial work, for, for physical factory work. But now that we're in an office environment, now that we're in a knowledge work, or as I like to call it sometimes, an idea factory, um, now that we're in that environment, we need to think about how do we innovate our new factory? How do we innovate our new workspace and our new management systems in order to keep being innovative? Because these sort of factory innovations always precede um, product innovations. They always precede value. So if we don't start innovating our factory, we're going to lose out on that piece. And the great leaders have always been the ones who take a deep look at what are the systems we need to put our people into in order to get the best out of them. Well, David, I want to thank you for these great insights and for sharing your thoughts on some of the ideas you put forth in your book. And it's wonderful to have you on my show again, although this time not as the guest host, but as my guest. <laughs> yes, it's been fun being on both sides of the microphone, though. So thank you so much for having me. I've been talking with David Burkus about his new book, Under New Management. To learn more about David and his work, visit the webpage for this episode at tavernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You could do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at tavernasir.com. And if you found my show on Stitcher Radio or on iTunes, please be sure to join other listeners in rating this show. Until next time, this is Tamar Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening.